This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent nonprofit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com slash donate. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, The Swap by Mark Sutz and The Octopus by Douglas Cole. The Swap, written by Mark Sutz, read by Mark Rushton. Listening time, 6 minutes, 30 seconds. The Swap When I was 10, I traded my younger brother Bob, then 7, for three deer legs and a dead snake. The transaction took place on a July afternoon at an opening in the fence between our backyard and the Conwells. The buyer was their youngest daughter, Alicia, a girl about Bob's age, with a permanent blackberry stain on the corners of her lips and the fingertips of her right hand. She and Bob had played silently every afternoon that summer in the enormous sandbox and playhouse her father had built for her and which all the neighborhood kids under ten had coveted during construction with a dry-mouthed envy. Bob was like a child king there, Alicia a minuscule queen, the sandbox their joyous domain. They reminded me of kittens, innocently regal and playing in the sun. Alicia had once reluctantly led a few of the neighborhood kids into her dad's taxidermy shed looming next to the playhouse. This was after some of the boys, me included, had called her every childish version of a liar that we could think of when she started going on about how many dead animal parts her dad had hanging on the walls of the shed. It was even better than she'd described, legs and heads and claws and hooves all tacked up on the walls like a spare parts warehouse for the zoo. That summer, Bob and I had terrorized yet another housekeeper into leaving. Chung Sun, the Korean girl my dad had hired on a Sunday, was, by the following Friday, telling him in broken English and perfect Korean hand gestures that she wanted her pay for the week and would find better kids to take care of somewhere else. The day after Chung Sung left was the one-year anniversary of my mother's death. We were planning on visiting her grave that sunny Saturday, but my father said we'd go the following week, told us Mom wouldn't be happy that we'd driven away another woman who only wanted us to be good boys. He left us alone while he took one of his long weekend runs in the woods near our house. Since Mom had died, he'd become a fitness junkie, and if he didn't get his run in, Bob and I knew we'd be in for silent dinners of rotisserie chicken and cream corn. Don't answer the door, he told me, and if you need anything, call the Conwells. Please be good. As I did whenever Bob and I were alone, I made hot dogs for lunch. For some reason, I noticed this time that the hot dog juice, left in the pot, looked remarkably similar to the lemonade Dad would make from concentrate. Cloudy, yellowish, the flakes of hot dog skin like citrus pulp. After I bunned and plated the hot dogs, I filled a clear tumbler with ice, poured the steaming hot dog juice in, topped it with more ice, stirred it around, stuck a finger in to make sure it was cooled, and yelled for Bob to come into the kitchen. Bob! Hot dogs and lemonade! He ran into the kitchen, sat down, and went right for the tumbler. A few gulpy swallows later, and at the apex of my uncontrolled laughter, he threw the tumbler of hot dog juice and ice at me and punched me square in the nose. 
The blow was so hard, my knees jellied, and I saw little white dots in my eyes. I could still hear him, though. You jerk, you jerk, you jerk. After I pulled myself off the floor, I put a hand in my nose, and my fingers came away covered in blood. I smeared it all over my face and ran to where I knew Bob would be hiding. I was trying not to cry when I found him in the closet behind all the winter's coats. Bob said, You can't hit me, you can't hit me, you can't hit me. I'll tell Dad, I'll tell Dad, I'll tell Dad. Bob had hit me before, but never with such bloody consequences. Whenever I'd gone to my dad and complained, he said I couldn't hit him back because I was older and bigger and had to set an example. So, with no other choice, I marched Bob out to the fence, his arm behind his back, my nose bleeding down my white shirt, and yelled for Alicia. She came running from inside her playhouse. She looked at my face and shirt and said, What happened? I'll trade him to you, forever, for something in there. I pointed to her dad's shed. She grinned a little and seemed to forget about how I looked. I held Bob in a headlock and could feel them shaking. Alicia returned with the snake and deer legs. These were in his throwaway box, she said and shrugged. I pushed Bob away, took them out of her hands and said, You're her brother now. Don't ever come back. She held his hand and they walked towards the sandbox. Bob looked over his shoulder and I could tell he was crying, but the transaction seemed about the smartest thing I could have done at the moment. I clutched the contraband and walked back to our house, listening for my dad, but he hadn't come back yet. The deer legs felt hard as steel in my hands, the fur smooth and warm over the bone. I went into the bathroom to clean up. There was so much blood on my face and t-shirt that I threw up the moment I saw my reflection in the mirror. I cleaned myself up, wiped up the vomit, and imagined how nice it was going to be to not have Bob around anymore. I figured if my dad wanted to see him, he could always go over to the Conwells. When my dad returned from his run, I met him at the front door. I put my fingers to my lips. Shh, I said. We're playing hide-and-seek, and Bob thinks I'm in the basement. He's down there looking for me. He tousled my hair and whispered okay. I went down to the basement, and free of Bob and more fighting, I thought about what I was going to do with my newly acquired trophies perhaps a three-legged table that I could pose the snake on. I knew my trade was discovered when I heard Mr. Conwell banging on our front door an hour or two later. I came up from the basement, heard a flurry of words, including something about Bob wanting to live with the Conwells until he was a million years old, and my dad and Mr. Conwell were gone. Certain of where they were heading, I made my way out our back door and to the opening in the fence. It was dark now, the only light from Mr. Conwell's shed. Alicia was standing over Bob, and my dad reached down and picked him up. They all looked so small standing in the sandbox, Bob a lump in my dad's arms. I could see Mrs. Conwell through their kitchen window. She was wearing a light green apron and laughing into the phone. The End Mark Setz lives in Arizona. He has published more than a dozen short stories in a variety of journals, and contributes regularly to the online culture magazine, The Nervous Breakdown. His website is marksets.com. The Octopus, written and read by Douglas Cole. Listening time, 12 minutes, 38 seconds. The smell of Big Jim's room hits me about 10 feet before I reach his door. It stinks. He stinks. He's just so fat he can't bathe himself well, or I don't know what it is but it suggests necrosis. 
Inside the room itself, piles of laundry fester, seated with empty bottles, papers, curled up shoes. It's an alchemy of filth. Big Jim is lying on his side on his bed in gray sweats and a Lakers tank top. His limbs and neck are heavy with extra flesh. He looks like a bloated caterpillar. Bob's head is hanging. He's so stoned. He pops back into the world, grinning and bewildered. Three bowls, he says with a grin, meaning he smoked three of the bowls in Jim's six-shooter bong. The bowls are lined up on a slide bar. It saves on loading time and gives you a Gatlin high. Edwin is squinting so hard I can't believe he can see. You're going to kick some ass tonight, Edwin, I say. Yeah, you know I am. He's poised on a chair, coiled like a viper. All of them move in and out of focus. All of them are more or less there and not there in the smoke screen. Someone is playing piano downstairs. I can hear it coming up through the floor. Whoever is playing is pretty good. I gotta make a little run, Jim says. You wanna come? I'm not sure if he's speaking to me or Bob or Edwin or all of us, but we all head out together. Cave creatures are in the television room watching reruns of MASH. RAs are clustered like Gestapo at the front desk. We pass by. I think we're invisible. But through the door comes this little guy with a wispy black beard and one finger stuck in his ear. I've seen him before. He's had that finger shoved into his ear for weeks. Hey, man, I say, polite, really, and just, why not ask? Why do you have your finger in your ear? He looks at me a moment. He looks away. He looks at me again and whispers so I can barely hear him. I'm from Guam. We're driving in Big Jim's car. It's a Malibu, a big car for Big Jim, and he has the front bench seat pushed all the way back to accommodate his tree trunk legs. Bob is sitting up front, his head lolling about. Edwin is in the back seat with me. At one point, Bob's head bangs against the passenger's window so hard he leaves a grease smear on it. Big Jim has his arm on the back of the seat, and he keeps looking back, telling us about his old fraternity at Cal State L.A. and the drinking and the girls. It's hard to imagine a girl going for Jim, but when he was playing basketball, who knows? I wanted to keep his eye on the road, but he keeps looking back. I never went to class, he says. None of the jocks did. Well, not exactly. I went on the first day, the midterm and the final, but nothing else. A's in every class. All I have to do is read. Most of the guys on the team were complete idiots, though. Hey, Jim, I say. Can you keep your eyes on the road? We're on the San Mateo Bridge, and the bridge lights flash by at face level, and they look li just like headlights. You nervous? Jim says, looking back, grinning. Don't be nervous. Look ahead, I say. He laughs, looking at me, the road coming at us fast and furious. We're now south of the city, in the dark. I was lost a long time ago. Jim is singing old fraternity songs. Bob laughs, but I don't know what he's laughing at. Edwin is evaporating before my eyes. 
I feel like I'm in a separate movie that's occasionally spliced into theirs. I don't know if theirs is the same as mine, but Bob definitely seems like he's somewhere else at the same time. Little Spanish stucco bungalows float by. I can feel the city's radiation, but out here its pulse is slow and weak. All I can say is this guy better have my money, Jim says. We pull up to the house. Cars are parked in the driveway and on the street, but Jim drives right onto the lawn. That was the first indication that something was wrong. Then Jim takes a gun out of the glove compartment. That wasn't part of the plan as far as I know. Hey, what's going on, I say. Something is happening, but you don't know what it is, Jim says as he claws his way out of the car. I thought we were going to a party, I say. Just bring in my little convincer. Bob looks at me and rises from the swamp. Should I be afraid? He asks. He's lost his smile. This is more than he bargained for, I'm sure. But he just drifts along. Whatever's going to happen, Bob passively accepts it. Edwin shows nothing at all. He has martial confidence. He has trained himself as a black belt for over 12 years. I don't know how many fights he's been in, but he has no fear at all. Whatever fear he has, he doesn't show because he's trained it. At least, that's what I imagine in my Bruce Lee version of his art. The front door is closed, but Jim pushes right through. I could have left. I thought of walking away. I can't say why I didn't, except there was a thrill building in the moment. Walls of mystery opening. Anything could happen. I guess I'd stop and stare at a train wreck, even if I thought it might crash into me. Crowd. Funky sweat and smoke and Bob Marley music and characters all around. I don't know anyone, of course, and the minute we swim into it, Jim drives ahead, parting the sea. But I hang back in a countercurrent and drift along like a child who's like a flower, head just floating in the breeze. I think I'm still near the door, which is good. I'll be closer to the head of the pack if they start to scatter. Who knows what'll happen with Jim. But I don't have to be up close for whatever scene he's directing. A girl appears before me. She's got black hair and black eyes. She's wearing a black dress. She has an East European look of stale bread and snow drifts and bombed out cities. She reaches out her hand and touches my cheek with her fingers, and a thousand pogroms rush through her electric gaze as she says, squinting, You're the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Really? Another hand reaches out, and I take the joint it offers and smoke. A drink comes to me. I'm not asking for these things, but I accept them. Everything. I feel like I'm standing on the back of an octopus and its arms are gathering around me tighter and tighter. Someone else speaks to me, but all I hear is faster. Faster? I look around, but I have no idea who said it. Faster? What's that supposed to mean? I might have heard it wrong. I think someone kissed me. Could be a few minutes, could be a few hours have gone by. 
laughing, music so loud I've given up trying to hear or speak. Some people are dancing, some are naked. From time to time there's a kind of uniform rhythm to everything, but then it breaks up and everyone is in a personal fugitive dream, a note here and there, heard, appreciated, and forgotten. This is another kind of party, a party of the body, not the mind. There's really no talk at all, I can tell, just movement in a big hive, arms pulling me in, arms and eyes in this stoned, open amazement. Jim appears. He's smiling, and he may have said something, but I couldn't hear him. I guess whatever he came here to resolve got done without his having to use his convincer. Maybe he just showed it, and that did the trick. At least I didn't hear a shot. And Jim has a girl with him. Or she seems to have materialized with him at the same time. There might be no connection. She's a pretty blonde in a tight t-shirt and jeans. Everything there to be seen. People are groping her. But she's far away. She's smiling, but she's gone. I don't imagine good things are going to happen, but I'm no judge. People usually get what they come for. Then Jim pushes past me towards the door. I'm ready to turn, but the girl is close, her lips close to my ear, and she says, drunk, stoned, you know, I'm a famous porn star. You are, I say. Her hair brushes against my face. Yeah, awards and everything. She sort of smiles, sort of falls asleep for a moment, leaning against me. No kidding, I say. Then she comes back up to the surface. I've been in the big magazines, too. I bet you have. She reaches her arms around me. I'm basically holding her up. I can do things no other girls can do. Uh, how do you know? Guys have told me. What have they told you? I'm a good fuck. I once did 20 guys in one night. In a movie? No. They were recruits getting ready to ship out in the army. They were very kind. Doing your part for the country. I felt like I'd run a marathon. I was bruised all over. Well, that doesn't sound good. It was... Interesting. I also have a reality show. I smile at her. She drifts down again and then slides back to the surface. You make me nervous, she says. Why? You're so... cool. I kiss her cheek. She smiles. She's hovering with her lips near my mouth. A moment more, and then she drifts off, pulled by the arms. I have the impulse to go after her, but by now she's long gone. And then the arms pull me away, out and away. Jim is driving, driving and singing and the road flows back through the neighborhoods and the intersections vibrating with pollen light.
flows onto the bridge and over the oblivion of water. And the city keeps sending its waves. I can feel it pushing us forward, waves sick and strange and blue. I can taste it. Douglas Cole was born in Seattle, raised in Berkeley, and currently resides in Alki, West Seattle. Recently published in Underground Poetry, Cortland Review, and Tattoo Highway, Douglas also won the Leslie Hunt Memorial Prize in Poetry. Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund and the President's Fund of the Greater Cedar Rapids Community Foundation. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off, copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.